Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to our morning service. We're continuing with our lessons for a quarantine church. This is part 10, probably just one, maybe two more messages in this series, and we'll do something different. Uh, the topic this morning, I can't tell you how important this message is to me, the nucleus of evil character and how to avoid it. The nucleus of evil character. I've given it a couple of different titles, you'll notice, but this is the one I'm working with until I get more inspiration anyway. The nucleus of evil character and how to avoid it. And it's just a phrase from Psalm 41.6 that we're going to be studying in this teaching this morning. Psalm 41.6 says this, His heart gathers wickedness to itself. So the text isn't even actually an entire verse. It's just that phrase lifted out of the sixth verse of Psalm 41. If you were to read the whole psalm, it's a lesson on how uh, righteous it is to minister compassionately to the poor and the needy, and that this is a right thing to do because it's the way God works, the way God ministers in this world. A brother should sustain the weak in his time of need. In fact, in fact, one of the greatest examples of not being loyal when loyalty is most needed, it's taken out of this 41st Psalm. Jesus does it. He does it in John 3.18 when Jesus predicts that Judas is going to betray him. And when he does it, Jesus quotes verse 9 of this 41st Psalm. Because, let's face it, that's perhaps the greatest example of a friend betraying another friend in the hour when loyalty was most needed. I dedicate a lot of babies right from this pulpit. I can't think of when I've ever had a boy named Judas. We don't choose that for a name. But there's still more truth that I want to pull out of that one phrase in verse 6. His heart gathers wickedness to itself. And I'll tell you why I think that's such an important phrase. Some of the most important issues of life in terms of holiness and following Jesus, some of the most important issues are explained in this short little phrase. Here's what we're going to look at. The phrase tells us first how good and intelligent people find themselves captive to sin in some area of their lives. That's in this phrase. The phrase also tells us why it's so hard to convince people of the danger of sin before they actually experience the bondage and pain of that sin. That's explained in this phrase. The third thing in this phrase, this little phrase tells us how to best protect ourselves if we're going to remain free from sin's bondage as we follow Jesus in this corrupt world. Those are the three things I want to look at. So I kind of told you where we're going before we actually get there. So, point number one, this little phrase tells us how good, upright, intelligent people, how they find themselves captivated, held to sin in some area of their lives. Look at it again. Psalm 41, 6, his heart gathers 
His heart gathers wickedness to itself. You've actually seen how this works. The way I've done it with my, 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 my grandsons, the, the way to make a big snowball, especially in damp, wet snow, is to make a tiny little snowball and just roll it along the ground. And it, it makes its own increase as it goes. You don't have to go around hunting for additional snow. You simply create the nucleus. That's what you do. And then the nucleus will gather into itself more snow. The nucleus will gather into itself things consistent with its own nature. The little snowball makes its own increase as you just roll it along. So as long as you begin with a little, right, the little will organize its own momentum. His heart gathers wickedness to itself. If sin didn't accumulate just precisely the same way as that snowball, if sin didn't increase in this exact way, we would be far too intelligent to embrace it. Almost everyone, Christian, agnostic, atheist, pagan, almost everyone is at least morally good enough to be repelled by the grossness of sin if he or she saw the end result of that sin, the final manifestation of the pain, the bondage, the suffering. If we saw that, well, most of us would be too intelligent and too proud to be caught up in sin in the first place. If we, if we saw the final ugliness, the final hurt of what seem to be just small sins when we're first tempted by them, well, we'd be too smart to launch into them. So how do intelligent, good, upright people, how do those people end up with their lives all bound and sorrowful and gummed up and bruised in sins they don't even enjoy anymore? How does that happen? This verse tells us the heart, the heart, here's the verb, gathers, gathers, gathers iniquity unto itself. So, so what these people had planned on in their moment of free choice was an invitation to one tiny specific indulgence. And they didn't know that that was going to end up being a host sin for all sorts of others. So in other words, they were counting on a controlled deal. They were planning on sampling the fruit of one specific, selected, chosen concession that met with their desires. That's what they saw other people doing. Everything seemed fine for them. What they weren't counting on was the uninvited gathering of diverse, conflicting, life-constricting, pain-producing, pushy sins that would come attaching themselves to their minds and hearts. Only 
the first sin was invited. The rest just gathered. So this is so important. This is the sad, slowly discovered secret power of all sin. So my power of choice only extends to the creation of the nucleus. I only control the first few steps. After that, my heart, your heart, gathers wickedness unto itself. So so the power of my will to turn this process off will usually be about as effective as choosing not to physically grow old. That is how good, intelligent, upright people get caught in freedom-killing, life-destroying, pain-producing sin. That's the first question answered. Point number two. This verse also explains why it's so hard to convince people of the danger of sin before they experience the pain of that sin. Here's a church, here's a crucial life principle. In any moral, spiritual endeavor, whether for good, holiness, or sin, wickedness, in any moral, spiritual endeavor, the greatest power lies in the beginnings of things. The first choices always carry far more weight than the last choices. In fact, the last choices are usually just the inevitable result of the first choices. The last choices only seem more important. It's always the first choices that set the course for the life. Now, I'll tell you what, anybody who's experienced any kind of spiritual leadership be it leading a church, teaching a class, discipling a small group, or or simply trying to be a godly parent, anyone who exercises any kind of leadership knows how hard it is to convince people of the importance of seemingly small, insignificant first choices. Human wisdom, being what it is, we all want to make the big choices of life well. We all want to avoid huge mistakes. Small choices, first choices, usually aren't considered all that important. Small spiritual blunders are frequently almost overlooked. The Bible, biblical wisdom, approaches the whole issue from the other end of the stick. The Holy Spirit wants to teach all of us that life is, life is usually determined in the small early choices. In fact, I think the Word will teach us that if the small decisions are made, the first choices are made with the Lordship of Jesus vividly in view, the large issues will just about take care of themselves. Seek ye, seek ye first. There's your first choices the kingdom of God and his rights, all these things, they'll be at, they fall into place. Now I want to come back to our issue in this second point. 
Here's why it's so hard to convince people of the dangers of sin before they experience the pain of sin. If there's someone you love, someone you care about, and you want to spare them the pain, the bondage, the misery of sin, well, the problem is you, you really only have one hope of accomplishing it. Usually, you have to talk to them about sins that they don't see as being a big deal yet. That's the problem. There's really no other way to help them. And after years of dealing with all kinds of people, all ages of people, I can tell you what they're going to say when you try to help them in the first choices of sin. They're going to tell you that it's no big deal. They're going to tell you that there's really no problem. If they have a religious background, I can tell you what they're going to say. They're going to tell you you're being legalistic. They're going to tell you you're making a big deal out of a very little issue. They're going to tell you they're only doing what everyone else in the church is doing. I mean, their words are just entirely predictable when you try to help them. And when they say that to you, you have to, in love, sit them down, look them square in the eye and say to them, of course, that's what I'm doing. Of course, I'm trying to make a big deal out of a small one because there's really no other way to avoid this. I can't possibly talk you out of big, serious, binding sins. This is the only time I can help you. You can't talk someone out of immorality when they've already moved in with their neighbor's wife. You can't talk someone out of his or her drug problem once they're addicted. But maybe I can talk you out of the kind of entertainment you're putting into your head. I might be able to talk you out of that. Perhaps I can still talk you out of friends who are going to lead you down a wrong path. Maybe I can talk you out of that. Perhaps I can still talk to you about the kind of music, videos that play up sexual immorality, downplay virginity and purity. You see, friend, this is what you have to say. This is the only way you can ever beat down sinful addictions and maintain a pure heart. You have to start by giving serious, prayerful attention to little things. Careless things, thoughtless things, because if you can do that, you'll never have to worry about big, spiritually binding sins. Consider this. Consider this. In terms of his involvement with human beings, what we know from the Bible is the very first thing the devil did was hide the disastrous results of a seemingly very small compromise and disobedience to God. I mean, Eve didn't shoot Adam, and Adam didn't leave his wife. Here's what they did. Well, they ate a piece of fruit. That's it. And, and there was nothing in that action, apart from the word of the Lord, there was nothing in that action that would make it look wicked or sinister and the very first thing the devil does when he comes on the scene is he convinces Eve and then Adam that it's really not that big a mistake. Never miss the key 
issue of the account of the fall. The key issue isn't the age of the earth. The key issue is a simple one. Will Eve and Adam allow the moral prohibition of God to rule their lives even when they can see nothing morally offensive in what he forbids? This is precisely why God offers no explanation for his prohibition. He outlines the consequences for disobedience, but he never gives a reason. It needs to be enough that God said it. And so if any Christian is going to be holy in this kind of world, he will have to deal quickly and faithfully with a string of little things while they're still so small, they don't look like they're a big deal. And this is hard to do because we can't really imagine the kind of momentum small compromises gather into our hearts. So that's the second thought. Small choices build the nucleus. After that, the heart gathers its own wickedness to itself, and it's out of your hands. Point number three. We're almost done. I love this verse because it tells us how to protect ourselves if we want to remain free from sin's pain and bondage. Remember, it's that little phrase, Psalm 41.6, his heart gathers wickedness to itself. So if, if small bad choices create the nucleus, and if the nucleus then carries the whole heart deeper and deeper into sin, then the place to stop sinful momentum in your heart would have to be right at the first impulses towards small compromise. So so in other words, it is life's highest wisdom to avoid sin at its earliest possible entry point. Here's a text I love. It's Romans 13, 12 to 14. Paul says, the night is almost gone, and the day is near. Therefore, so he's writing to Christians, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of the light. Okay, so this laying aside the deeds of darkness, that's what we're talking about, right? How's how's that going to happen? How are they going to do that? Let us lay aside the deeds of darkness, put on the armor of the light. 13, let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to put off those things, going to lay aside those things. How is that going to work? 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then these words, make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. So don't provide for the, those early desires, that lust desires. It's not just sexual. It's all, all those desires of the heart. If you're, if you're going to make no provision for sin, you're going to have to deal with it at the very early stage, the desire stage. So you could easily read those words as if they were just calling us to an almost impossible task. Lay aside the deeds of darkness. So are we really, are we really just expecting the addict to be finished with his addictions the moment he comes to faith? 
How, how is that going to be done? I mean, imagine the willpower that this would require. Now, we can take great comfort in the fact that Paul does cite pretty strong evidence that people did make such turnabouts in their behavior through the power of the Spirit. We know that from 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. Paul says, do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers. It's just a list. It doesn't mean it's exhaustive. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the spirit of our God. So there, such is the greatness of the power of the life of God's spirit regenerating the human heart. But I think that if you look at Paul's words in Romans once again, you'll see something in addition regarding how people can avoid sin's bondage. He says, just to read it again, Romans 13, 12 to 14, the night is almost gone, the day is near, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness, put on the armor, so it's a protection. It, it, it relates to that making no provision, armor. You don't, there's no entry point. Let us behave properly as in the day, 13, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Here, here are my closing thoughts on that Romans 12 passage. He says, A, this present era of moral darkness is coming to a close. It's almost over. The, the devil is spending himself, using himself up. If you don't think about this, the present era of darkness is coming to a close. You can see the sky lighting up. The day is dawning. If you don't think about this, you either haven't read your New Testament or you haven't understood that Jesus is coming back. The night will be over. And Paul says that intelligent Christians, intelligent Christians, they orient their activities to the coming kingdom of light, not the present era of darkness. That's the first thing. B, the way to keep clean, he says, is to make no provision for the flesh. Say those words to yourself. Make your mind repeat them. They say more than many Christians think. I mean, Paul is not just saying don't get drunk. He lists drunkenness. He's not just saying don't be sexually impure. He lists that. But that would just belittle and miss Paul's point entirely. Paul is saying, don't ever put yourself in an environment where drunkenness is a feature. D don't hang around with people who are sexually careless. Don't go to places with your friends Friday night where moral carelessness is a source of recreation and fun. Make no provision for the flesh. See? I want you to notice this. Paul actually says people can't really put on the Lord Jesus Christ, verses 14. 
You can't put on the Lord Jesus Christ unless you're prepared to live miles away from spiritual compromise. Those aren't two different things. They're the same thing. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. We, we, we should have a pretty good picture of what Paul's talking about, make no provision. Here we are in this COVID-19. You see all the precautions. I can remember back, maybe you can too. Remember a few years back when there was this big scare about mad cow disease in England? I can remember watching the news and seeing cattle being bulldozed into huge, huge pits and trenches and then all set on fire. I mean, I mean, hundreds of thousands of animals were destroyed, yet only a very few of them actually had mad cow disease. But unless all of them were destroyed, there was a chance one or two might slip through. And, and, and they weren't going to make any provision for that happening. This is the way Christians are to deal with small but potentially deadly sins. Don't make any room. Don't make any allowance. Don't make any space. The idea is keep the nucleus of your heart clean. Every sin feeds and fattens itself on other compromises. So don't give sin any momentum in your heart. You you might not realize it, but one way or another, the night is almost over. Life is better in the light of God's presence and grace and power. His heart gathers iniquity unto itself. That is a life changing phrase, church. Study it. Remember it all your life. Let's pray together. We feel like saying with David, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation day and night. The nucleus of our hearts. The first choices, the early beginnings. Give us our deepest spiritual wisdom to keep us walking in the light. Thank you for your word. Bless it to our hearts. Give us wisdom to feed on it and apply it in those first areas where our hearts might incline us in a wrong direction. Knowing the truth sets us free. And thank you for your grace that can take the seed of the word planted in a heart like mine and make it grow 30, 60, 100 fold. That's what we need. Bless the word to Cedarview Community Church. Keep us, as the routine of this lingers, keep us devoted to your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.